morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome to our um, 16th or 17th Tanakh and Inyana Diyama. This time we're going to be learning through a parak in Tehillim that details the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim but presents it in a very interesting way. Uh, if you say Tehillim regularly, you'll recognize this parak as being a very, very long parak. <laughs> I think, uh, Jenny, I think this is always your parak, right? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> nobody wants to take this parak. It's a very long parak. But now, now maybe with uh, some um, additional understanding in what this parak is coming to teach us, we'll have more appreciation for what we're saying. <clears throat> this parak always fascinated me because it does go through Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but it does present it in a very interesting way. It talks about the events of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, it talks about the Makas, um, it says the Makas in the wrong order, it doesn't say all of them, and then it has an interesting angle on Yitzhak Mitzrayim, it just starts in, from a different place in Yitzhak Mitzrayim, it starts from before, then it jumps to after, and the message seems to be a very different message than we're accustomed to when we uh, teach Yitzhak Mitzrayim, because we teach Yitzhak Mitzrayim all the time. We have it as part of our Seder. That's the whole point of the Seder and Pesach, is to teach Yitzhak Mitzrayim and to give over the lessons. And the classic lessons that we give over when we teach Yitzhak Mitzrayim is we teach about Amunah, trusting in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and all the fact, the fact that we're the chosen nation and that we got the Taira and how we have to praise Hashem, we have to have a Kara Satayat Hashem, and all that is true. But what's interesting about the way David Amalek presents Yitzhak Mitzrayim is that he presents it as a cautionary tale. He, he presents it as, look how they went through all this. They went through, had all this display of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's might and his strength and his ability, all these open miracles that they lived through, and yet they still didn't fully believe in Hashem. They didn't place their full trust in Hashem and see to it that you don't do that. That's the way David Amal presents it. Let's take a look. Maskal Asif, <clears throat> so Asaf was, there are many different authors of the, of the poems, so to speak, the poetry of, of uh, Tehillim, the Psalms. So Asaf was one of them. So Maskal Asaf, Hazina Ami, listen my nation, uh, Terasi, the Taira that I'm going to teach you. Hatu Aznachem, lend your ears, Le Imrefi, to what I'm going to say. I'm going to begin with a mashal. I'm going to um, transmit chidos are also riddles from from days uh, from early days. This that we all heard and we all know. He's, I mean, he's talking about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which are facts and stories that we're all familiar with. And our, our fathers have taught it to us. And therefore, we won't hold it back from their children, or our children who are their children, the, the next generation. We're going to talk about the praises of Hashem, and His power, and His miracles that He performed. So, so far, that's so good, right? This is what we do. We teach... We were taught, and we teach what we were taught to our children, and we teach about HaKadosh Baruch Hu's praises, his strength, and his miracles. Now, then it goes on to talk a little bit about what Klai Yisrael did, and then it says, Pasig Zayin, Va'yasimu Kim Kislam, then this way, our children will put their hope and trust in Hashem, and they won't forget what Hashem has done, and therefore, Mitzvah they will keep his his commandments. So they shouldn't be like their fathers, Dur, the Dar Hamidbar, who was a Dar Sarah a rebellious um, generation, and Loy Hechem Liboy, they hadn't properly prepared their hearts, they hadn't properly prepared themselves, as and they weren't fully um, trust trusting in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this is the introduction he gives to teaching the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The introduction that David Avalek gives, we have to learn the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, partially to see how they all witnessed all these miracles, and yet they didn't achieve the full level of betachin, of trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu that would have been expected of them, and see to it that we don't repeat that mistake. And we, do, we rather do take the lessons of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and allow it to to uh, bolster our betachen and to strengthen our betachen, our trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so that we can reach the levels of Yisimu Belakim Kislam, that will put our full hope and trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and we won't forget what Hashem did. <clears throat> now, 
the the fascinating thing about betachen is that trust. You know, my my son once asked me years ago, "What's the difference between amuna and betachen?" Right. So amuna is faith, is belief, and the betachen is trust. And the difference is discussed at life, that's the truth. But I gave him a very a simple answer. W- when I was young, I was about, I think, 12 or 13. So in the, we used to go to the Catskill Mountains in the summer, and there was a place called Ring Homestead. So Ring Homestead it was like um, one of these rope course kind of places. So we went with my, my brothers and my sister, we went, and uh, the first, I remember the first obstacle was you had to climb up uh, a tree, there was, you know, like a, there, there was a ladder on a tree, you climbed up, it grew quite high, you're about 25 feet off the ground. And then you were hitched up to this harness, because they always hit you up to this ha- safety harness. And then on the tree, there was a ledge about, about this, this, this wide. And then you had to jump off the ledge, grab a trapeze, and swing to the other side where there was another tree with another ledge. All right, so my brother went first, and there was no way he was doing that, right? He's not jumping off that ledge. But they didn't give you a choice. You were up there. They started pulling the harness, so you basically fell off the ledge. So he, he, so he didn't have a choice. He, t- he jumped, and he, got, he missed the trapeze by a mile. <laughs> and he was hanging there mid-air, but he was supported by the harness. So we all saw that. And we all saw that it was totally safe, right? So we had this full, we saw it with our own eyes. It's safe. They had me by the harness. He was lowered down slowly. And then I remember I went up. And there was no way I was jumping off that ledge. <laughs> I saw the harness. I knew the harness existed. I had full faith in that harness. But I wasn't going to do it myself. I didn't have trust in the harness until I actually did it myself. Once I jumped off or was pushed off, and I, I floated <laughs> in the air, so then I had trust. And then the next time I was able to do it. So faith and trust are not the same thing. You can have faith, and I'm talking about real amuna, like you can totally know it's true but that hasn't yet brought you to the level where you're ready to trust, where you're ready to put your life on the line and have trust. That's another level, uh, another step. And generally for human beings, what that takes is you have to experience it yourself. And therefore, the, the, what, what the David Malach is really telling us is that look at that generation. They were like Hei meaning to say HaKadosh Baruch Hu did demonstrate to them and gave them the opportunity again and again to experience that they can trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, they can put their life on the line and trust. But like Hei Khan they didn't open their hearts in a way that they should allow it to build that trust within them so that they could then move on and trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu without having the need to have it proven to them again and again. And what Hashem is telling us, what Dabra Malach is transmitting to us, is that when in our lives, see to it that you don't do that. Hashem always gives us opportunities to build trust. He gives us opportunities where we know that Hashem will take care of it, but we're not sure, will we be okay? And then it works out okay. Do we then look back and say, okay, now I realize I can build trust in Hashem. I've just jumped off, the harness has supported me, I'm floating in midair, it works. So now I know next time I can trust in HaKadosh Baruch <clears throat> Now look at one of the, next, one of the examples that David HaMalch gives. This is Pasig Ches. The next piece over here, next paragraph. They tested Hashem in their hearts. To ask for food. This, this is coming from the parasha, parashas. Um, actually, there's a discussion in the Mepharshim, what it's referring to. If, if, it's not referring to the man. It's referring to the slav when they asked for the pigeons. They asked for meat in the midbar. And it's, it happened twice. It happened once in this week's parasha and then once in parasha's Baha'u'llah. So it's not clear which one it's referring to. But in any case, it's clear that they were testing Hashem. So they tested Hashem in their hearts to ask for food. And they spoke about Hashem Amru. And they said, Could Hashem set up a table uh, in the midbar, in the in the wilderness, meaning can he, you know, like really set a table, serve all every uh, all kinds of foods? Hey, now this is both the, the Shechina talking or Claudius was speaking, but it's the same kind of sentiment. Hey, he could serve a Well, he has already performed a miracle. They hit a rock, and water came flowing forth. And there was rivers just washing away everything in their path that came out of this rock. Hagam lacham yuchal taste. Can he give? Can he give bread as well? And he has given bread, so he gave man. And now can he prepare meat for his nation? And then it says a couple more talking about that. And then the the summary is They didn't believe in Hashem. They did not trust in His salvation. 
Now, the Mepharshim try to understand what was it that Kali Yisrael were testing. I mean, they did see the water already. They did see the man. So what was it that they were testing about the meat? I mean, if Hashem could provide water and he could provide man, why can't he provide meat? What, what was their thought process? So their doc says, our next paragraph. There's nothing living there in this midbar. Will he be able to set a full table? He's already given some of the things we need on the table. He's provided the man, and he's provided the water. But it would be a much greater miracle in Yitin Habasar if he can give the meat. Um, so the man came down in Hashemayim, and other things come down from the heavens, I guess. There are a lot of kinds of rocks that sometimes give forth water. Where's he going to bring meat from? This is what they said. He was able to give um, bread. So they had some kind of, this is a little hard to understand, but they had some kind of justification thinking, well, bread, water, that's it, that he could do. But who says he can do meat? They don't believe that he's able to do that. The Malbim says a similar thing. who built And he gives us a little bit more of a perspective of what the lack of the belief really um, meant over here. They didn't believe that he is without boundaries, that he can do anything. And he'll be able to fulfill his promise that he'll be able to help us uh, defeat the people who lived in Eretz Yisrael so we'll be able to take over Eretz Yisrael. So there was a, a bigger picture here, right? They needed quite a bit of trust in Hashem to then proceed into conquering Eretz Yisrael. As we see, that was the ultimate test of Betachem, which they failed, the Miraglim, and they had to be 40 years in the Midbar as a result. But that was where their trust was supposed to be getting them to, that they would trust in Hashem, yes, we can do this. So they said, we're not sure. He can do everything. His, his strength is limited, and it, doesn't have, it has some kind of end. He can't do three things at once. Bread, water, and meat. When they need water, he won't be able to give them meat anymore. He could either give meat and bread, or water and bread, but shame based on and blood, gimbal drum, not three things. What does this mean? Well, so, so, you know, we, we read this and we laugh at this, right? What kind of thought process would that be? I mean, we have an understanding of Hashem, and we understand if you understand who Hashem is, then He's, he's without limit and without, without boundaries, and the whole world is under His thumb. So, what does this mean? So we laugh at this, but we realize, really we're laughing at ourselves. And what I mean is that we have the exact same thought process. Maybe we don't verbalize it this way because we don't experience open miracles. But we have the exact same thought process, which means that we have gone through in our lives different tests and trials and nisyayinus, right? And there's been times that things have been difficult, whether it's been when we were younger, we went through a difficult time, or then when we had to... Trying to get married, that's a difficult sign. When you have, want to have children, that's a difficult sign, and etc. And w- the process of raising children or parnasa, there's always, this, uh, that's our life. Our life is full of different challenges and where we have to trust in our Kaddish Baruch. And then we pass through one of them and then we say, okay, you know what? You look back. You, talk, you do look back. You look back and you say, hey, Hashem really helped me through this one. He made it happen. And I see now that everything kind of fit into place. Everything made sense. And then you're faced with the next, next sign and you're in the same, same place where you started, right? So what, is the, what are you really thinking in your head. So what we're really thinking in our head is, well, Hashem did that. Who says he can do this? Now we say, what do you mean, Hashem? Hashem can do anything. Well, who says he'll do it for me? Who says he'll, he'll come through? That's the same thing. There's really no difference. In Betachen, that, that's not a, there's no such thing like that in Betachen. Hashem, Hashem did it for you once, he'll do it for you always. Hashem wants to give you the best that he can possibly give you. Whatever his motivation to give you the first thing, he has the exact same motivation to give you the second thing. Hashem, Hashem doesn't change. There's no change from Hashem's perspective. It's only us that change. So we really do the exact same thing. This is what we do. We, we, in our mind, we justify and we think, well... I was, yeah, okay, you know, Hashem did that, it's not such a big deal. A lot of people have that, you know, a lot of people have good pranasa, a lot of people have children, all the things that we have in our lives, we think, we justify it, and we say, yeah, you know, that's easy for Hashem to do. That kind of fits in with the way the world works, and that's why I got that, but this, no one else is being challenged by this kind of terrible 
challenge that I have now, this difficulty that I'm facing now, I don't think Hashem can pull through for, this, for, for me on this one. So this is what David HaMelech is telling us, is that learn from the, our others. They made that mistake. We should not be making the same mistake. Go ahead. This is a tough one that, not that Hashem will do it, but that Hashem can do it, because maybe Hashem won't do it for me, and believing that even if Hashem won't do it, that it still has right. So that, that's all true, and, but, but that, that, in other words, you have, that has to be understood correctly, which I means is that what, what happens after a person has betachen is that he's not worried. Because regardless, you're in Hashem's hands, and Hashem will make it happen the right way. So there's nothing to worry about. There's no reason to be worried. And having full trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu means that you know, uh, you're in a car, your eyes are closed, you're blindfolded, and your mother's driving the car. <laughs> Right? So you're not nervous. You have no idea where it's going to go. You have no idea what she's t- telling you. I'm not telling you where I'm taking you. I'm not telling you where you're going to end up. You know, you're, you're curious. We're interested. We're, we're apprehensive even. We want to know. But we're not nervous. That's Betachen. Right? That, that, that's where Betachen takes us. So yeah, you don't necessarily know what the outcome is because we have no clue what Hashem is going to do. And often after the fact, it's like it's, it was the last thing we thought that was going to happen. It was the last person we thought we were going to marry and the last place we thought we were going to live. We could testify to all those things. But that happened, right? But, but it, it ended up, and when, once it happens, you look back and you say, oh, you know, wow, that makes so much sense. And, and, and once that happens once, and that happens twice, and it happens three times, you would think, okay, by now, let's just follow the pattern, and let's get the idea. This is the way it works. We don't have to know exactly how it's going to work out. We just know that it will work out. And that's, that's, that's what B'tachan is about. <clears throat> so this is the theme that David HaMelech runs through the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, how we can use it to learn our own fallacies when it comes to Betachem. Now, so let's go a little bit to how he talks about the actual presentation of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Now, he starts, after he gives his introduction, which is kind of long, then, then when he gets the Pasuk um, test, he gives a little bit of an introduction, and he goes again, skips till, takes a while till he gets back to the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. But this is a Pasuk that start, tells us a story about Yitzhak Mitzrayim be, that took place before Yitzhak Mitzrayim actually happened, and the Torah makes no mention of it, except in a little bit of a hint, but no mention of it. And this Pasuk test, B'nai Ephraim, Noishke Roime Keshes, Hafcho B'yayim Krab, the sons of Ephraim, Shevet Ephraim, Noishke Roime Keshes, they were armed with Roime Keshes with uh, bows that shoot arrows, Hafcho B'yayim Krab, they had to turn tail, so to speak, and flee in the day of a war. What's this talking about? What happened to these Bnei Ephraim? So, if you're familiar, but there was an attempt to leave Mitzrayim early, before the actual time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and it was done by the Bnei Ephraim. They had made this attempt. Now, there are two accounts in Medrash, exactly what happened, and they're very, very different accounts. So the first account is a Pirkei Reb Lazar. Reb Lazar, Reb Lazar says, Kal shanem Mitzrayim. The original years that Kal Yisrael were living in Mitzrayim, they were there safely, and they were there in peace, which means that the Mitzrayim had not started to oppress them. The Mitzrayim had not started to enslave them. These were the years which we typically, according to Rashi, is as long as the Shvatim were alive. Um, could be this Medrash holds it was even longer. But they, uh, for the length of time that they were in the Mitzrayim, in the beginning, there was no problem. They were living at peace with the Mitzrayim. Then someone, came, someone whose name was Yignon, he came, and he was from the grandchildren of Ephraim. And he said, Hashem appeared to me. Take you out of Mitzrayim. So we had our first authentic false prophet, right? The first one in history that came and said that Hashem uh, appeared to me to take you out of Mitzrayim. B'nei Ephraim, Begeus Libam, and B'nei Ephraim with their haughtiness. Because they were royal stock, right? Yosef had been royalty, and his children were treated as royalty as well. They were very strong warriors. Amdu, they got up. They took their wives, Bnei, their children, Bnei Sam, their daughters. And they left Mitzrayim. And the Mitzrayim chased them, and they killed them. So this was the first attempt of Klaus to leave Mitzrayim. They had a false prophet, prophecy that, they, that Hashem spoke to them, that they're going to leave. Clearly not all of Israel believed, because it was clearly 
There were holes in his prophecy. There was ways to tell that he was not telling the truth. Um, we know that Yaakov and Yosef had given very specific instructions how to recognize and identify who the true Savior is going to be. He had to say a certain language. He had to present it in a certain way. This didn't add up. But the Bnei Ephraim, due to their haughtiness, thinking that they, had, they could just do it anyway, chose to follow him, and then the Mitzrim chased after them and killed them. Now, they weren't slaves at this point. Why did the Mitzrim chase after them and kill them? I'm going to speculate, probably because it didn't look good for Mitzrayim that so many people, it's a huge amount of people, according to Dibra Hayamim, it was hundreds of thousands, were leaving Mitzrayim, didn't look good, so they chased after them and they killed them. Now, first of all, just knowing this Medrash, it helps us understand a couple of things in context. First of all, the fact that they had a false prophet helps us understand why Moshe Rabbeinu said, Vehem layaminuli. When as soon as Hashem commands him to go to Mitzrayim, he says, they're not going to believe me. That's a very good reason why they shouldn't believe him. He wasn't the first one to try. He wasn't the first person to come and present that Hashem spoke to him. There was, had been already a false prophet. So he needed, re, he needed some kind of reassurance from Kajwaku. How am I going to convince them that I'm not a fake? Kaisrol in, in Argolis, we've had the same thing. We've had a Shapsit Tzvi, a false messiah who claimed that he was Mashiach. Many people believed him. Many Gedalim believed him. And since then, since he was proven to be false, people have become that much more cynical. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of years of more cynical, right? What it'll take for us now to believe that someone is truly Mashiach. You know, we, we've seen this already. We know that people are trying to pull this off. So that's one thing. The second thing is what Parai said now makes so much sense. Parai uh, all of a sudden gathers his, his advisors and say, says, okay, you know, what are we going to do about Kali Yisrael? They're getting bigger and bigger. They're getting more powerful and powerful. But Olam and Aras, and they're going to leave the land. Now, if you read this, I said, that actually happened. That's what sparked off this meeting of Pare and his advisors. He said, the, we already had people that made this attempt to leave, and it looks bad for us, or it looks bad in the eyes of our enemies, a different way that Mepharshim explained what exactly was Pare was worried about, but now we see that something triggered that. And this triggered that, and that is when, that's what this measure says, that's when the slavery began. So this attempt to leave um, Mitzrayim early actually triggered the slavery triggered this whole uh, um, event into motion of Pari putting us, making, enslaving us. Now, what's the betachen point that David Hamal is coming to, uh, to bring out is a fascinating thing because there wasn't so much a lack of betachen in, in the typical sense, meaning to say, we always perceive betachen, the lack of betachen, meaning to say we're faced with a trial, we're faced with a, a test, we're faced with an assign, and we don't trust in a Kaddish Baruch Hu, so we get nervous and we try everything and we don't want... But that wasn't exactly the lack of betachen here. The lack of betachen here is that they really knew in their hearts that this wasn't the time for them to leave. It was Begayas Libam, the Medrash testifies that they knew, uh, you know, they chose to believe this prophet, but they knew as well as all the rest of Kali Yisrael, there were holes in his prophecy, there was something wrong, they knew it wasn't true, but Begayas Libam meaning to say, they said, look, we're powerful warriors, we're royalty, we can do this on our own. We don't have to wait till Hashem takes us out of Mitzrayim. We can choose to leave on our own. That was the chesar and betachen, because betachen is a two-way street. It's not just believing that Kaddish Baruch Hu, when things are difficult, he's going to save me. No, that's actually not the real avayda betachen. The real avayda betachen is when everything is going well, realizing it's not me, it's a Kaddish Baruch Hu. That's where betachen begins. That's where the, the real avayda betachen is. The Bnei Ephraim, their fallacy was, they thought, you know, we don't need Hashem for this. We can do it on our own. We have the ability. We don't need to wait for Hashem to send the correct Savior to take us out. We have the power in, in, in and of our, ourselves. And that was the ultimate lack of betachen. And that's where we really need to work on betachen ourselves. Whereas our avoid of betachen, once you, we get into a test, once we get into a situation of, of difficulty, of, of, of stress, that's a little too late <laughs> to work on betachen then. That's very difficult at that point. That's a nisayin. The avoid of betachen is every single day when we have food on our table, when we have parnasa, when our kids are, 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 are healthy, when we're healthy, when... Actually, that's, that's a little tricky now, but... <laughs> when, when, every, when things are working, and then we have to constantly set, you know, tie that back to Kaddish Baruch It's not me. It's not us. It's not Yadi. Everything that's happening here, everything that's happening well is because HaKadosh Baruch was making that happen, because HaKadosh Baruch was providing for us. And it's that where is the real test of Betachen, and if we work there, then we'll be successful. On the other hand, when, when things do get difficult, we'll have already all that built up. We'll have all that power and trust 
worked out already that will provide for us the ability to withstand the next test. And this is what David HaMelech is telling us, that the, the, the mistake that Kali Yisrael made at this point, or he's attributing it, you know, when such a large chelak of Kali Yisrael makes that mistake, it's the fault of the whole nation, that we need to, as a group, as a community, strengthen ourselves in the understanding that it's not just that Hashem saves us when things are difficult. It's we can't do anything unless Hashem wants us wants it to happen. We can't do anything unless we're doing what Hashem wants us to be doing. Look at the other account. <clears throat> according to the other, according to this account, so then the the, the Bnei Ephraim tried to leave Mitzrayim way earlier. They tried to leave Mitzrayim somewhere in the beginning of the stay in Mitzrayim, and that's what sparked off the Shibut. According to the second account. It was actually very, very late. It was just before Kali Yisrael left Mitzrayim. This is a medrash. The Shifteshal Mitzrayim made a mistake. They left Mitzrayim before the end was truly finished. And they were killed from them, um, 30 ten-thousands or three hundred thousand. And why were they killed? Because they calculated the four hundred years from the day that Avraham Avinu spoke and the mistake was a thirty-year mistake. Uh, the Pasuk in, again, last week's parasha gives both Cheshbainas, 400 years and 430 years. So they made a mistake in 30 years. Shenemar b'nei Ephraim neishkei roi mekeshes. Lulish They would not have made this mistake, they wouldn't have left. Vahargum plishtim. And they weren't killed by the Mitzrayim, they were actually killed by the plishtim. Shenemar b'nei Ephraim shuselach vahargum anshei gas. They were killed by anshei gas. Vahayu asmai sehem. And their bones were shtuchem baderech, were spread out over the path. Um, leaving Mitzrayim, chamaram, chamaram, piles and piles. It was already 30 years. So they, they miscalculated and they left, thought they were supposed to leave 30 years earlier. They did not wait for a savior. Clearly, they didn't wait for Meshra Rabbeinu. They didn't wait for any sign from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. They made this calculation and they left. And when they left, they were killed out by the, by the plishtim and they, they, they were left there dead on the road. Eventually, they you know, decomposed and there was just bones there, piles of bones on the road. Chazal are saying this to explain the first passing in this week's parasha, HaKadosh Baruch did not want to uh, uh, guide them past Eretz Plishtim because they'll raise the Muhammad, they'll see the war that had already occurred 30 years earlier. They would see the, 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 what, what happened when Klaishal left Mitzrayim, those, thir- those 300,000 people left Mitzrayim the first time, they were wiped out and all destroyed, it would dishearten them and it would make them lose their faith. So Hashem therefore guided them a different way. They should not see all those bones, all the remnants of the people that made this early, uh, left early. And here too, you know, it says they made a mistake, but the mistake was held against them because the mistake was a, re- a result of a lack of betachan. Would they have had the proper betachan? They themselves knew that they're supposed to be waiting. Hashem is going to send a sign. Hashem is going to send a savior. It wasn't just you could sit there and make your own calculation and then leave. It wasn't going to work that way. And once again, they left thinking that, okay, we can do this on our own. And that had the same effect that they ultimately were destroyed because of that. One interesting thing, there's a safe called Shachal It's the Talmud of the Arizal. And he just says, what's going on over here? We know that no Evid was able to escape Mitzrayim, right? No slave was able to escape Mitzrayim. What's, how did they get out? How did 300,000 people get out? So he says, which is not said anywhere else, he says that the Ephraim, being that they were the direct descendants of Yosef, they were never forced into slavery. The Mitzrayim did treat them with deference because they were the sons of, uh, of, the, of the royalty of, of, of Yosef Atzadik. So they were not, never enslaved. So that's how they were able to leave. It's just an interesting fact. It's not, not recorded anywhere else. Now, last thing about the Bnei Ephraim, which is, I find fascinating, um, is that what ended up happening with these people is they all died, they're a bunch of bones. But that is not the end of their story. That's what's very interesting. Way, way later, in Gaul's Bavel, when Kali Yisrael, as we spoke in previous shiurim, were on the fence. Should we leave Babel? Shouldn't we leave Babel? Should we go with Ezra, Aptar, Yisrael? Is there any hope for us? Is this a waste of time? Is this also going to get destroyed? So HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes a demonstration to Yecheskel Hanavi. Let's take a look, just skip the one line here, and go to Yecheskel, Perek Zion. <clears throat> so he says, Hashem took him out into a plain. 
he miraculously transported him to a field. And the field, he says, he saw piles and piles of bones in this field. And Hashem asked him, do you think these bones can come back to life? And Mechaskel properly answered, oh, Hashem, you know. <laughs> you know whether they could or can't. So Hashem commanded him to talk to the bones and tell them to come to life. So Vini Basi, and I said a Nevuah, Kashiti Basi, as I was commanded. And then there was a, a huge, a loud sound, Kihi Navi, as I was saying, the Nevuah, Vihine Rash, and there was a tumult, Vatikrivu, Atzamais, and the bones started coming together, Atzamal Atzamai, each bone to its proper place. Pasik Yud, Vihini Basi, Kashatsivani, and I, I continued to say the Nevuah as I was commanded, but Ruach, and life uh, inhabited these bones, and they came to life and they were covered with flesh. and they stood on their feet. a tremendous army. ben Adam. And Hashem told me, Ben Adam, that's the way Yechezkel is always referred to in uh Baruch Ben Adam. Uh, these bones, they signify kol beis Yisrael All of Klai Yisrael today are, are a mush, these, these bones are a muscle for them. They say, all the Jews who were in Golis Babel, they say, our bones have been dried up, we've lost hope, has, been, you know, has cut us away, and there's no hope for us. Therefore, prophecy, tell them, I can open up your graves. And I can pull you out of your graves, even if, though, in other words, you've descended so low, you've done so many avarice, where you fig- figuratively or, or literally have died spiritually or, or, or physically. I can take you out from there too. I can bring you back to Israel. So the Gemara in Sanhedrin says, Who bone, whose bones were these? It was the bones of the Bnei Ephraim. So, and the uh, Gemara then says that they actually went on to live and get married, and one Amaira testified, I'm a grandchildren of one of those people that were uh, resuscitated at this point. So it's just, uh, the irony is that what they failed at the time, where they, they lacked the betachen and lacked trust in HaKadosh Baruch to wait for him so that he would redeem them, and, and instead they tried it on their own. And because they left and then they died, they were a stumbling block for Klai Yisrael. They disheartened Klai Yisrael, so much so that even when Klai Yisrael was taken out with the ten makas and makas b'chayas, Hashem had to circumvent them so that they don't see them. They were then given a chance to rectify that. Because this, this prophecy now instilled hope in Galas Babel that look, these people came back to life, you can have hope too, and you can trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he'll take you out, he'll, he'll revive you, he'll bring you back from no matter how dead you feel, and bring you back to Eretz Yisrael. So what they did wrong then, they were given the opportunity now to rectify where I imagine they came back, and they integrated into Kal Yisrael, and they told of the, of the, the miracle, and gave them that hope, and that trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, so that's just one piece, which the only source for this whole story is really this Pasuk into hell. That's the whole source for the story of the Bnei Ephraim. So let's move ahead over here to um, um, yeah. Go ahead. I don't know, I'm digesting this. Yeah. Over here. Yeah. Mean, you didn't know it could happen early, right? Never. <laughs> Yeah. We say Mechayim Mason. It's something that we believe in. That's never right. happens. You know? So now you know so, what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the advantages of learning Tanakh. Just always like something that we, you know. Yeah. 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 Not only has it happened happen here, you know, on a grand scale, where Chayal Gadol Moed, according to 300,000 people or however many people it was, um, but on a limited scale, the Gemara talks about many times that it was uh, pulled off by Amaraim, Tanaim. They had the ability to, to be Mechaim Mesim, you know, individuals. Yeah, but this was on a grand scale. Yeah. This is actually the Haftar. We laid it on Pesach. Um, and um, the first I want to know why we're laying it on Pesach. Like, it's, a, it's an interesting story, but what connections did it have to Pesach? And this is one of the connections that it was the bones of the Bnei Ephraim. And it's a, it's a lesson for us when we, le- when we, you know, have the Seder. One of the the points of the Seder is to bring us to Lashana above Yerushalayim, to bolster our belief that it happened to them, it happened again, it can happen again to us too. Um, one other thing I just want to mention here before we start, the next segment is uh, actually the, the part here I skipped. It's the second to the last paragraph on the first side. Um, this is a different passage here. 
and that the nation forgot what Hashem did in the Flois of Asherah and the the miracles that He showed them. Now, th- this is actually talking about the Bnei Ephraim. In other words, it's being held against the Bnei Ephraim. Why did they have this lack of betachin? Why did they have this lack of trust? How did they forget the miracles that Hashem demonstrated to them? Now, Hashem didn't demonstrate any miracles to the Bnei Ephraim. It was either thirty years or or hundred years or one hundred and fifty years before you see a Mitzrayim. So look at the next pasuk. Neged avoysim asapela. In the front of their fathers, Hashem had performed the miracle. Be'eretz Mitzrayim in Mitzrayim b'state Zion in this, this, the field of Zion. It's part of Mitzrayim. Bokayam vayavirim. He split the, the the sea and he pat he he took them through. and he made the water stand like a pile. But that was all post facto, right? That happened afterwards. So Mefarshim say. And again, I never saw this before. But Mepharshim say that Hashem had made a live demonstration for the Avis. Aram Yasek and Yaakov. All the miracles that happened in Mitzrayim were done live in front of the Avis. The Avis saw it for themselves. HaKadosh Baruch split the Yamsuf and he made them walk through. They had a live demonstration so that when they were telling Klai Yisrael, their children, what to hope for, what to believe in, what to trust in, they weren't just talking about something that will happen, could happen, they were telling Hashem, we saw it ourselves. Hashem demonstrated what He's going to do, how He's going to save you, everything, the amuna and the, 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 the knowledge, Hashem had it firsthand from the others, a, 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 a firsthand testimony, and therefore was held against them, that you have all the information you need, and now you should have used that to, to uh, create your own power of betachan and most certainly us, where we actually experienced Mitzvah um, Mitzrayim as a nation and it's been transmitted and handed down, how much more so is it an obligation upon us to utilize that to create betachan, to create trust and create faith in a Kaddish Baruch That was also a fascinating thing. There was no, no other source other than this. So let's go now to see how David Amalek presents the Makis. So this is way further in the parak. This is in Pasik Mem Dalit, the second side. He he flipped the their rivers, the Nile River, to blood. The and the waters Balyushtoyan could not be drunk. We used to Nizlay means all things that drip, all water. Pasik Mem Hey, Yishalaf Mem Na so he starts with Dam, right? Next. Yishalafum Arev. Okay, we skip to Arev. he said he he sent Arev, the mixture of animals, and they ate them. Back to Svardea. That's Svardea v'tashchisim. And he sent Svardea, the, the frogs, and Tashchisim, he destroyed them. Pasim Vav. Ve'yitin l'chassel yevulam. And he gave their yevul, is their, uh, the, their crops, the chassel. Chassel was uh, arba, so the, the, the locusts. Ve'yigim l'arba. So chassel and arba are two words for locusts, perhaps different, different kinds, perhaps not. Pasik memzayin yaharig b'borod gafnam. And with Barad, hail, he destroyed their vineyards, which Shikmoisam Bachanomal, and Shikmoisam means all the standing crops like wheat and grains. Chanomal is another word for Barad. Pasimemches, Vayazger, Laborod, Beiram, and then he also handed over their cattle to Barad. Their cattle was also killed by the hail, Umikneim, Lereshafim, and the Mikne is the sheep, were killed by Reshafim, the fiery hail. Pasimemtes, this is a familiar Pasik. We say this in the in the Haggadah. We explain every word of this Pasik. It means to say how many different makas were incorporated in one maka. Pasik nun um, he carved out a path for his anger. He didn't hold back their lives from death. Okay, next maka. And their, their livestock was given to Deborah to plague. And he hit all the Bukhair in Mitzrayim, all the firstborn in Alecham, in the, the tents of Cham. So let's think about how many makas have been listed. We have Dam Tsefardeya. Kinim we skip. Um, then we have uh, Arev, Dever, Shechin we skip. Then we have Arbabarid and Choshech we skip. And then Makas Bukhar. So this is seven out of the ten Makas. Three of them are skipped. They also, the, the order is all messed up, right? Dam goes to Arev, goes back to Tzafardeya, goes to Arba, goes to Barid, goes back to Dever. So what's going on over here? It's also the language, the way he presents the Makas is interesting. There's a lot learned out of the way, the language, how he presents it. So I'm going to share with you an approach from mostly the Al-Shukh, the way he understands this, and a little bit of the Malbim. 
So <clears throat> the, both of them, really, the Malbim and the Alshaf, both say, this is just an interesting point to know about the Makis, that there were three sets of Makis, like we say, the Tzach, Hadash, Ba'achav. So there were three sets, and each one, each set was coming to teach a different lesson. And this, almost all of the Mepharshim understand. That's the reason why we group them in different groups, the Tzach, Hadash, Ba'achav. What exactly they're coming to teach us, each, each Mepharsh has his own way. One pasik by the first three Hashem says teaches any Hashem. The next one teaches any Hashem bekerav haaretz. The third one teaches any Hashem ein kamayni. So what it means is different form, different aspects of betachan. Any Hashem is all powerful. Any Hashem bekerav haaretz. I have ashkacha pratos. I know what's going on. And ein kamayni is nothing. No, no other power except for me. So the, the different aspects of, of, of our amuna and our faith that were being taught by the makas. But what they say is that only two of each set of makas was coming to teach that. So Dam and Sefardeya taught that. Kinim did not teach that. Kinim was just a punishment because they didn't learn the lesson. Um, Arayv Devra taught the second lesson, and then Shechin was a punishment because they didn't learn the lesson. Each, the third Makkah of each group, there was no warning before in the Torah. There was a warning for the first two. Each one of the Makkah, if you look through the Psukim, you'll see there's a warning for the first two. There's no warning for the third because the third wasn't coming in to teach them anything, it wasn't warning them, it wasn't telling them you have to do tshuva, it was punishing them for not learning the lesson. And Chayshech was the same way, and then Makas B'chayres was the grand finale, and that's, you know, that, that ended the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So that's why the third Makkah is skipped out. That, that we're only focusing on the Makkahs that came here to, talk, to teach a lesson. That's what the, the Malbim explains. Now the Alshur goes and explains the reason for the, the way it's, it is, um, the, way, the, the reason why the order is in this particular way. And it's a fa- also a fascinating idea, and it also teaches us some interesting things about the Makis that we didn't know. He says that essentially the Makis were doubles. Each Maka had a, a corresponding Maka that really was doing the same thing. Sephardeya, uh, he says, and Arev were really doing both the same thing. Now, when you think about it for a minute, what did Sephardeya do, right? I don't know if you think about like, what, 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 what did it do to the Mitzrayim? We think it made a lot of noise, it was very annoying. They frogs were everywhere, so they were. It was just that was very disgusting, right? But that's not what the pasuk says, right? Then this is a pasuk in the The frogs destroyed things. What did the frogs destroy? Frogs. We don't look at frogs as capable destroyers. So he quotes a zayar, and the zayar says that whenever they drank water, there were microscopic eggs in the water, and it turned to tadpoles, and it grew into frogs in their stomachs that every mitzri had frogs living in their stomach. And he said that these frogs, according to Zaire again, the frogs were able to burst through anything. So the, the, the Zaire says that they burst through the floorboards of the mitzvah, they bro- broke through stone and marble. So they were super-powered frogs. So the frogs, when the stomachs of the mitzvah burst through as well, they destroyed them, they killed them. And it, if you think about this for a minute, this is a real horror movie scene, right? <laughs> that's, they, they're drinking water and everything, you know, not, there's nothing really new that's imagined. Uh, it all has a source somewhere in the Torah. It actually happens, right? Reality is the best. So anyway, so they, they, they drink the water and then it starts, it starts, uh, you know, percolating in the stomach and all of a sudden they're full of frogs in their stomach and then bursts out and they die. So he said, essentially the frogs could have killed them all off just as easily as the Arev did. It was doing the same thing that the Arev did. That, that was really what the Makkah of Tzapardea was. And later on, when Arev came, the exact same thing happened. All these animals came, and he quotes a medrash, a well-known medrash, that uh, a Jew who was a slave to a mitzri was sent out with his children to the park, and then he comes back, he had none of the children. He says, I haven't told my children. One child was taken by uh, a lion, the other one by a tiger, the other one by a snake, and they were all killed. So the, 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 both Arev and Tzapardea were accomplishing the exact same thing. So what was the reason for these two makas? He says what actually was, there was something miraculous about the Makkah of Tzvadeh. And the miracle was that they weren't all killed. Really, they could have all been killed. They all drank. They all had these frogs in their stomach. They could have all died from that easily. And that would have obviated the need for any further Makkah. But Hashem not only struck them, but He miraculously withheld His anger. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent His punishment with an exact measurement, with an exact midah, how much he wanted them to suffer and how much he did not want them to suffer. And it was not the same way the Makkah happened with miracles and it was not Derech HaTeva. It was also had to be withheld with miraculously. If it would have been left to run loose, it would have totally decimated them. There would be nothing left of them. So the Makkah was both sent and held back miraculously. Now this 
This is something which I only learned from the Halshuk, but the next thing he says is actually Rashi. Rashi says it in, in Parshish, um, the end of Bait. He says the same thing happened with the Arab and the Barad. He says, first was Barad. Barad went and destroyed the trees. It destroyed the crops. But Rashi says, uh, the Pasuk says, Ki afilois heima. Some of them, did, some of the crops did not get destroyed. Ki afilois heina. Rashi says, one shot. And then he says, Pile ployim nasa. It was miraculous that they weren't destroyed by the hail. The hail should have destroyed everything. It should have destroyed every single last crop. It was fiery hailstones that should have burnt down or broken anything that was around. But it didn't miraculously. Because Baruch prevented it from destroying everything. It was Shuloi Kedera both in the way it fell and in what it didn't hit, so that there would be then room for the Arabah to then destroy whatever else was left. Kalash Hishra whatever was left over by the Barad was then destroyed by the Arabah. The same thing happened with the livestock. There was a double between the Barad and between the Dever. Barad destroyed livestock, Dever destroyed livestock. Dever was a plague. The plague should have wiped out every single last cow, every single last sheep, but it didn't. Plague doesn't, as we know, doesn't, uh, doesn't stop. It just goes, right? And it kills, it, kills, it, it, it attacks and hits everyone. No one, no one is spared. It really should have killed out all the livestock, but it didn't. Miraculously, I thought Baruch spared what, uh, those that he chose to spare. And then the Barad came and killed out some of the rest. They are also, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, miraculously saved at Hayares Dvar Hashem. Those who, who uh, feared Hashem's word, Heinus Esmiknase, brought in their, their livestock. The livestock were protected. What were they protected by? They weren't protected by the roof. Roofs are not protection from fiery hail. <laughs> the hailstones were the size of basketballs. They, there was nothing that could have protected them. It was miraculous. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, if you bring them in, they'll be protected, and they were. Those animals, subsequently, were the animals that brought them to Kriyas Yamsa. They used those horses, Sarashi says. And, uh, and, and then they, found, they met their final end there. So each step of the Makis, what the, uh, David Amalek is demonstrating, according to the Alshuk, is that all the Makis were essentially doubled up. And even in Dam, so we'll get to that in a minute. This, there's a doubling up also. But regardless, the, each one of these makas, Sardea and Arev, and that's why he starts the other way around. He says Arev, and then he says Tzfardea. Say that Arev was there only because there was something left from Tzfardea. And then um, <clears throat> Barad and Arba is, is grouped in the same way, and Barad and Dever, likewise, to demonstrate that Hashem sent the first makah but withheld it miraculously. And thinking about this, there is, I think, two perspectives what we have to understand, as far as Betachan is concerned, is both from the Mitzvah's perspective and both from our perspective, as you know, Kali Yisrael there at the time. From the Mitzvah's perspective, it means Hashem was punishing them, Hashem was sending them suffering, Hashem was sending them a lesson. Um, but his anger was checked. Kajabrochu doesn't just send out his anger and then allow it to destroy, it was measured. And what that teaches us is a, also another fundamental point, is that anytime we are suffering, anytime we have a test that causes us pain, that causes us anguish, and, and we're in a situation where HaKadosh Baruch Hu is clearly testing us, we are to learn from this that Hashem, everything is measured. We're not going to suffer an iota more than Hashem wants us to suffer. And Hashem will withhold whatever pain and suffering would be natural for us to have, it'll be miraculously withheld the same way we, our punishment doesn't happen on its own, whatever suffering we have, whatever difficulty we experience, it doesn't happen on its own. It's sent from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Chazal called this Yisurim Nishboim Va'imnim. Hashem sends Yisurim as, as if it would be its own um, living entity, and Hashem makes them swear. Nishboim Va'imnim, He makes them swear you're going to go, and you're going to leave exactly when I tell you to leave. They don't, can't stay for a second more, they can't cause more pain, uh, not a drop more pain than Hashem wants them to, to, to cause. There was, wasn't a single frog that burst out if Hashem didn't want him to burst out. So if Hashem wanted this mystery to be spared, it was, he was spared. So from the mystery's perspective, it teaches us a lesson of how Hashem does this. There's nothing that isn't calculated to the nth degree. And from Klai perspective, it's, you look at it from their perspective, they saw the Makkah of Sardea, and this could have ended everything. And they were dying to leave Mitzrayim as soon as they had the opportunity to leave Mitzrayim. Moshe Rabbeinu had to convince them to take gold and to take silver. As Rashi says, they said, forget the gold and silver, just let us go. So they were dying to leave Mitzrayim, and every moment that they were in Mitzrayim was, it, it was scary, because the Mitzrayim were being punished. Who do you think they're going to take it out on? And they were scared of the Mitzrayim. We see it was a big miracle that they took the the sheep for carbon Pesach, they were worried from retribution from the, the Mitzrim. They were still scared of the Mitzrim. They still had the ability to hurt them. They didn't. Hashem saw to it that they didn't. But that required trust in Hashem. So you have the Makkah Tzadeh. Everything can end now, and it's not ending, and they don't understand why. 
And this also was a demonstration of faith and trust in Akash Rocha. Akash Rocha has a reason why he's doing what he's doing. And it is going to play out, and it'll make sense. You'll see how Tzfardeya left room for Arev, how Barad left room for Arba, and how everything works together. There is a plan, and there is a way that it works, and there's a reason why it's, why it's happening the way it's happening. So both from our perspective, and both from the Mitzvah perspective, it's both a very important lesson that David Amalek is trying to communicate us. I think there's, there's more to be thought about here also. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very fascinating um, perspective on the Makkas. But this is what came to mind when I was, uh, when I was learning um, this, this uh, Al-Shukh. I just want to share the last piece is um, the very first Pasuk. Hashem turned their river to blood, but the waters were by and couldn't be drunk. So a number of them say that there were two parts to Makas Dam. Blood, the, the Nile River turned into actual blood. So it was had the actual chemical makeup of blood. It looked like blood, it felt like blood, and, and had every aspect of blood, all the fish died. The rest of the water of Mitzrayim, you know, when we have that picture of um, the Mitri drinking and it's turning into blood, and the Jew drinking and it didn't turn into blood. So the Mepharshim say that according to this passing tell them, that's not what happened. All the water looked great. Actually, the water in the rest of Mitzrayim looked wonderful. It was just undrinkable by Mitzrayim. When a Jew drank it, it tasted like water, and it looked like water, and it was beautiful water. And when a Mitzri drank the same water, it tasted like blood. It didn't turn into blood. It was just undrinkable, like, like blood was undrinkable. And the point here also is that that was also a very controlled maka. The Maka was on the Nile River, which was their Abai Dezara, it was their idol, that was turned into blood. The rest of the waters, the, the Maka was diminished. It didn't have the smell of blood, it didn't have the disgusting aspect of blood. It couldn't, they couldn't drink it unless they paid for it. But it was also a demonstration how each Maka had many different facets to it, many different parts to it. And this is ultimately what the Pasuk is saying in the middle here, which we say, um, Pesach night, and we really don't know what it's talking about. When we say that every maka had four, four makas in it, every maka had six makas in it, and uh, 250 makas, we don't know what it's saying. This gives us a little bit of an idea what that means. Every maka had many, many different facets to it, and each different facet was considered a separate maka, because it really was, and it was measured, and it was calculated exactly who it was affecting and how it was affecting them, and it was all part of Akash Baruch's plan. And ultimately, what it comes to teach us is that We've been given opportunities and we're constantly given opportunities through our lives where if we are heichen libay, if we utilize it, if we prepare ourselves, if we want to think about it, so then when we pass through it, we can then look back and say, okay, now I understand why this happened, how this happened, what it accomplished at least, what it was there to teach me, what I learned from it. We can look back and appreciate what Hashem did and then utilize that to create the tachen because now we've experienced it ourselves. So we can now have betachem the next time. And it's a constant avayda. And it's a constant avayda when things are good and when things are bad. And if we are heichen liba, if we utilize these opportunities, then we can be v'yasem lakim kislam. We can then put our full trust in HaKadosh Baruch And ultimately, what the Pasuk is coming to tell us, and you can read through the rest of the parak there, it's so that we have the ultimate belief in HaKadosh Baruch that he'll take us out of this galas and he'll build the base of Mikdash. From here we remain. Thank you.